as you see in the bulletin, our text for this morning is Matthew chapter 16. I'll be reading the first 20 verses of Matthew chapter 16. This is the very word of God, and it deserves our careful and undivided attention. Hear the word of the Lord. Matthew 16, the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, and no sign will be given to it, to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, They'd forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began to discuss, oh, they began discussing it among themselves, saying, uh, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Verse 13, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not, has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. The grass withers, 
The flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. We have a psalm of preparation in the Psalter, Psalm 19b. from week to week uh, I know I struggle with this uh, what's said from this pulpit on, on the Lord's Day morning but I do remember some things I see several people take notes and that's fine and, 
if you need to do that to help you remember what was said, that's, I recommend that. But I remember uh, last week several things that Dan said. One of the things I appreciate, and I can talk about him because he's not here. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about Dan, among many things, is his transparency. Uh, do you remember he said last week how, how he struggled with his uh, exposition through Revelation? He said, he said uh, I'm not quoting him exactly, but he said it's the most difficult thing he's done in his 20-plus years, um, here at least. Um, first time he's... Uh, preached through, or did an exposition through Revelation. I must confess, I never have. Um, I took the easy road. <laughs> I did an exposition through Genesis. It took me a couple of years. I did an exposition through Matthew that did a couple of years or maybe a year and a half. I don't remember the time frame. But I do appreciate Dan's courage and faith to approach one of the most, if not the most difficult books in the Bible to understand. There are so many interpretations and so many ideas about what it all means. But another thing Dan said last week, and he, he quoted uh, Cornelius Van Til, a theologian, um, and he um, said, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the quote again as I, as I begin the message this morning, uh, he quoted Van Til, who said the following, and I quote, Human knowledge can never be completely comprehensive knowledge. Every knowledge transaction has in it somewhere a reference point to God. Now, since God is not fully comprehensible to us, we're bound to come into what seems to be contradiction in all our knowledge, our knowledge is analogical. That is, it's stemming from God's knowledge. Therefore, it must be paradoxical. End quote. I don't you remember Dan reading some of that last week? Do you believe it? Is it true? It struck me uh, right there. Struck me right there, really. Um, how much knowledge there is about God, how, much, how many things about God we don't know. So we have to decide whether we're going to spend our time trying to figure out what we don't know or trying to understand what we don't know, or are we going to emphasize and work on those things we do know? I'm a pretty simple man. I'm, I'm not a deep thinker. I'm not analytical in my makeup. So I, 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 tend, I, I tend to do, as I said earlier, this, the easy things, uh, the things I understand easily from Scripture. I want to understand those things, but I want to do more from what I understand of those Scriptures. So that led me uh, to consider this passage this past week. Um, I've, I've been mulling over um, the, the verses uh, 5 through 12 have been my attention this, this past several weeks. And then when uh, 
Jeremy asked me to preach this Sunday, I, I focused on that passage. That seemed to be where the Lord was dealing with me. But then he expanded, expanded my thinking to include these other verses in this text. Because I think, I think they help us understand uh, what we're driving at here. Um, the question is, how much do we understand? And where does what we understand come from? Um, and do we take the information that we have? Are we changed by what we know? Are you uh, pleased with the change that is taking place by what you know about God and what you're learning about him maybe even now, especially the young people? Uh, what have we learned about him? How can we learn more, or do we need to learn more about him, I guess, is the question I'm struggling with here. In the passage before us, I find four things quite clearly outlined here. The passage breaks down well, at least in my copy of the scriptures, in these three stanzas, if you want to call them that. The first Stanza verses 1 through 4, I title a confrontation. Isn't it ironic that the only time the Pharisees and Sadducees get together is to test Jesus, to come and challenge him? Uh, if you know anything about the Pharisees and Sadducees, you know they were not friendly with each other. In fact, they hated each other. These are Jews but they are of an entirely different party. <laughs> They're separated by a chasm. But they do agree to come together to challenge Jesus. They want to get him, and so they, they, they incorporate their two groups. They bring their two groups together. I call it an unholy alliance of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they come to Jesus, and we're told by Matthew to test him. Now, I think a better translation is trip him up. <laughs> they really were not after any uh, positive information. They simply wanted to trip Jesus up, make him say something that would condemn him or they could accuse him of. So their purpose, and Jesus says it well here, comes from the fact that they're an evil and adulterous generation an evil and adulterous generation. Secondly, um, Jesus does this. Uh, I call this the measure of the man, the measure of the men. Uh, I call this a holy examination. When he says to them, you have the ability to interpret the weather. You've heard the old uh, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky in morning, sailor take warning that comes from this. Um, these men had the ability, and most people do, to look at the sky. If it's red at night, nice day tomorrow. If it's red in the morning, beware. He says to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you, you men know how to interpret the weather. You can look at general revelation and make some uh, assumptions. You can, you can make some, um, take some information from that. 
But uh, he also says to them in this passage, you seek a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of Jonah. What's What's he saying? Special revelation. You've already been told time and time and time again that I was coming. The prophet Jonah is an example of that, and you'll remember probably that Jonah's three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish kind of are typical of the resurrection of Christ. And that's, I think, what he's referring to here. You have all this, he says to them, you have all this information from the Old Testament, from the scriptures, and you, and you don't listen. You don't really learn from it. You're not learning anything. I hope, I pray that it's not true of us. Uh, most of us have been Christians for some time. There may be some here who are not Christians. I don't know. I don't know your heart. But I know in my own heart there are many things about God's word that I forget. Even those, even those small things, even those seemingly insignificant things. So Jesus is very critical of these people because they fail to understand and study truly what the scriptures have said about him. So learning involves a confrontation. What's your motive for learning? What do you want to do with the information you get? Write a book? Deliver a series of lectures? Get letters behind your name? What, what do you hope to benefit from this learning? What do you hope to get from this learning that you want? Oh, to know him, Paul said, and the power of his resurrection. To know him and the power of his resurrection. So the motive for learning is important. And we need to ask ourselves why I want to know this and what will I do with it once I receive it. The second uh, stanza in this passage, in this chapter, I call a comprehension. Verses 5 through 12. So the scene shifts from his confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees to a discussion with his followers, his disciples. So they, they leave and go to the other side. They're talking about Sea of Galilee. They pass to the other side. And when they get there, Jesus, they forgot to bring bread. And Jesus says, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So what do the disciples do? They start discussing the fact that they have no bread. And again, <laughs> Jesus is very critical of them for their lack of understanding. They don't comprehend the truth of what Jesus has said. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And he's talking about their teaching, of course, as we learn later on in this passage. But he does remind them of some past events that they're quite familiar with, the feeding of the 5,000. And he also talks about the second one of those, 
the feeding of the 4,000. And he reminds them of his provision for those people. Folks, there are a lot of things we have to accept by faith. We walk by faith and not by sight. Jesus takes that small lunch, that small boy's lunch, and multiplies it into enough food to feed 5,000 people. Plus, that was the men, plus men and women, so it was more than really 5,000. <laughs> Most people today would dismiss that as, you know, uh, nothing, really. Just, just some people wrote this down to make a point about this holy man, Jesus. But this... Uh, this idea of the Christian life and learning and walking, learning about Christ and walking with him is a matter, most of the time is a matter of faith. A matter of faith. Now, human needs are really, uh, struck me as I read this passage, these guys are thinking about bread. They're not thinking about Jesus. We got to the other side, we don't have any bread. What are we going to eat? They, they certainly were like Baptists, I think. You know, they want something to eat. That's the reason for going wherever they go. But they, no, they're thinking about their own human needs, their weaknesses and their desires when they come to the other side. And that, those are powerful things. Those needs, those physical needs are powerful. And we have to be aware of that when we make Decisions about how we serve the Lord and what we do in our Christian walk. But then we also need to remember that human nature is also sinful. Decisions that we make are based on our sinful nature. Our sinful nature plays a huge part in the decisions that we make. So the perception of these men immediately is on the earthly level. We brought no bread. What are we going to eat? Uh, and you can imagine there probably was some grumbling and complaining because they had no, had no food. But Jesus, and I've already said this, but Jesus reminds them it's a matter of faith. You guys have forgotten what I did when I fed the 5,000 and the 4,000. That's so true of us. We forget so easily what he's done. We forget that he's done things for us in the past. We're interested in the immediate right now. What have you done for me lately? Yes, Lord, I want to serve you, but what have you done for me today? Think about what he's done for you in the past. That ought to drive us to our knees. We ought to be thankful every day for what he's done for us in the past. And not be so focused on the present. April the 15th, 1976. A day which will live in my life with power and glory for the rest of my days. I fell down before him as a dead man. And he raised me up from the dead. That was the day I became a believer. April the 15th, 1976. It's as vivid in my mind right now as it was that day. 
I haven't forgotten that. I hope I never do. And the things he did for me from that day on live in my mind and in my heart. Day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, God showed himself and shows himself faithful to us. And we're all, most of us only are interested in what he's done for me today. What can you do for me today? It's a matter of faith, but it's also a matter of fact. And this is where the Pharisees and Sadducees got in trouble. Uh, I give the disciples a little leeway here because these men are uneducated for the most part. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees have no excuse. They knew the scriptures. And they knew what the scriptures taught, especially the Pharisees. And they didn't believe it. They didn't accept it. They didn't understand it. Not only is it important to remember what he's done, but it's also more important in my mind to remember what he said. What he said. And what do you find out what he said right here in this book? And how much time do we spend in this book? And how much time do we apply to the understanding of God's word? Forget about interpretation at this point. You can find commentaries all over the place that will give you this man's opinion and that man's opinion and so on. Some are better than others. Spurgeon once said he had a, a lot of commentaries in his library, but most of them were just to hold other books up. He put most of his emphasis on Matthew Henry. But why do we have all of these ideas about what God has said? And we want to find out what other people have said or think about what he said. What do you think he said? Have you ever asked him to give you understanding, to open your eyes that you might see, and open your heart that you might understand? Do you spend time in his word meeting with him? Or do you ignore it? What has he done, yes, is important, but what he has said to me, is more important. What he said, and he says what he means, and he means what he says. So we have a confrontation in our approach to learning, the struggle we have with our abilities and so forth and so on, and in our comprehension of what's important in life, what is important to you, the next meal you're going to have, or the next thing you might see in Scripture, the next thing the Lord might show you. I hope it's the latter. That brings me to the third stanza in this chapter, and I call this a, a confession. Verses 13 to 17. Let me read that passage again. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Here's part two of that question. 
He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Forget about what they say. What do you say about Jesus? Who is he? Who do you think he is? And of course, Peter, impetuous that he was, but he is a spokesman. And you see that all through the New Testament. He's kind of the spokesman for the rest of the apostles. Peter answers the question. He says this. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. All that we do here in this place is based on that statement. Is it not? I think it is. I think that sums it all up, doesn't it? Isn't that the apex? Isn't that the center of everything we do? That Jesus is the promised one, the Messiah? Mentioned where? First, in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, the crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And all through the Old Testament, there's the scarlet thread of redemption. Jesus if, you've got, if you have eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to believe, you'll find Jesus on every page of Scripture. He's there. And the question is, who is this man? Now, unbelievers will admit, unless they're mentally defective, they will admit that Jesus was a real person in time and space. I have never met anyone who denies that. I suppose there are some people. Jesus actually lived on this planet. He walked and left a footprint in the sand. He was here. He lived among us, among them. So he was an historical figure. Now, the question is, was that all he was? Just another holy man. Just another founder of religion, like Muhammad. Or like Buddha, or Confucius, or you name it. If he was just a man, then we're uh, wasting our time here this morning. If he was just a man. But Peter acknowledges these two things. That he is the Christ, the promised one. And he is the son of God. We could spend the rest of the morning on that. Just that, that statement. Who is the Messiah, the promised one? Who is this? And what does it mean? He's the son of the living God. Is that not a mind blower? The incarnation of God? God became a man? Took on this human flesh and lived among us without sin? Showing us exactly what a life should be like. What real life should be like. Not what we think it should be like, but what he showed and what he said. So he is the Christ, the son of the living God. That statement is a singular statement. When he asks who do other people say that I am, you notice the emphasis on the word you. and In the original, it's really emphasized. The personal pronoun. What do you think about him? What do you think about who he is? Very singular, very, very pointed. And it's also not only singular, it also separates. 
what you believe about Jesus will cause separation sometimes from others. Have you, uh, some of you worked the Mum Fest this year, and you maybe had some questions about your church and what you all believe. I heard Jeremy said this morning he gave someone a copy of the uh, Shorter Catechism um, and invited them to take it and read it because it explains what we believe here. That's a good thing to do. Cause people to really think about what the catechism says about who, who Jesus was. Have you read those questions in the Shorter Catechism about Jesus, who he was? I hope you will. I hope you have. The incarnation and its importance to us. The fourth point, the last part of this passage I want to spend a few minutes on, and that I call the conclusion. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out you know, this stuff. I hope you get the outline if you want it. Confrontation, verses 1 through 4. A comprehension, verses 5 through 12. A confession, verses 13 to 17. And now the conclusion, verses 18, 19, and 20. Let's look at that again. After Peter makes his confession, Jesus says this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now one translator, um, uh, Kenneth Wiest, he published several years ago, published an expanded translation of the New Testament. I, I pulled it down the other day just to check this passage. And he translates this as spiritually prosperous when Jesus, when Jesus said to, to Peter, blessed are you. Think about that. I thought that was interesting, an interesting translation. Spiritually prosperous are you if you know that Jesus is the seed, the seed of the woman, the promised one, and he is the son of God. Spiritually prosperous are you. And then he says to Peter, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. There's only one way to know for sure who he is, and that's when God reveals him to you. And that's how you're born again. <laughs> when God finally works upon your heart to cause you to believe this is more than a man. This man, Jesus, was more than a man. There's something different about him. So he commends Peter, but he also says that he was given this information by God, the Father who's in heaven. Now, I got backed up a little bit. Let me get to verses 18 to 20. Here's the next statement Jesus makes. To Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. I tell you, Peter, that you're the rock. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. There's a lot of debate about what Jesus means by that statement. 
some people believe that he's saying Peter is the rock on which I will build my church. Peter, and they go on to say that Peter became the first pope, or was the first pope. Other churches that have different ideas about what that statement means. But I, I challenge you to do some study on your own and, and read the different interpretations of what he means by that. Here's what I think he means. I think he means the rock that he's going to build his church on is himself. He's the rock. As the old hymn says, the rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus is the rock. He will build the church on himself. He, also, he says, I will build the church. We don't build churches. He does. We build buildings. Uh, we do all kinds of good things, but he is the one who builds the church, not us. So he builds the church on himself. He builds it on his own work. Thirdly, he says this. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. I've rolled that statement over in my mind many, many times. Especially this past week, but even before. What, is, what does that mean? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Uh, one interpreter I read, or one article I read, said that means that we are to be offensive and not defensive. We're to charge hell. As some of the preacher boys when I was in school used to talk about charging hell with a bucket of water. That's a silly statement, but it gives you an idea of their, their idea about being offensive, being on the offense rather, not offensive, being on the offense as Christians, and the gates of hell can't hold you back. I, I'm a little nervous about that interpretation. What I think generally this means is the power of hell compared to the church, compared to our Savior, is nothing. There is power in hell. There, Satan is a powerful being. He is much more powerful than we would like to think. But Jesus says he will not prevail against the church. The church will be victorious. You heard the statement, the church triumphant? The church triumphant. We are members of that church. The last thing he says to Peter is, I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. There's another uh, statement that I've rolled over and pondered and thought about. Um, the keys of the kingdom. What does that mean? How, how does that apply to the church? And, and what is, There are a couple of ideas that I came across. But the simple answer to that question is, the church has to have a purpose. The church has to have a reason for being. And I've already said this uh, 
Christ is the reason for the church. It's on himself that he builds the church. But what are these keys that he gives us? I used to tell my students when we went through this in our study of the Gospels, Jesus says, whatever you uh, bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. There is this connection with heaven and earth. There is this uh, conduit. Do you remember the vision that... uh, Jacob had when he spent the night in the wilderness and he had a vision of a ladder angels ascending and descending you remember that Jacob's ladder you young people remember that story what's the purpose of there's a connection between heaven and earth between us and heaven it's a, there's a conduit whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Uh, that's my interpretation of what that passage is, is saying. But what about, what about these keys? I think they represent two things that we should be doing as a church. Number one, sharing the gospel. That's the first key. The gospel. Christ died for my sins according to the scripture, was buried, raised on the third day for my justification, and so on. The second key, I believe, is discipline. Loosing, binding. Don't you see a connection there? Loosing and binding. Discipline. Church discipline. And all of that has to be included in our thinking about the church. Of course, discipline starts with me. I must exercise some discipline. I must begin to exercise discipline myself before I can start talking about disciplining others. You've heard parents tell their children to do something, and the children reply, why? I know none of you children have done that. What do parents usually say? What do they usually say, kids? Because I said so. Not a good answer. Not a good answer. Discipline starts with me. If I don't know why I want you to do something, I better find out. I know that God knows what he wants me to do. My problem is finding it out and doing it. So we've looked at these four items in the, in the area of learning, knowing anything. And I read that Van Til quote, and, and I'll sum it up just in my own words. If we know anything at all, it's because he's revealed it to us. Period. And rather than spending my time and effort trying to unravel the mysteries of Scripture... I need to be more disciplined in my application of what I know to be true. If Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, why do I not live that way? Why do, if I believe that, why hasn't it changed me? Why am I still not 
at least deep down in my soul, living as I should for him and acting as I should. So our knowledge, as Van Til said, is analogical. Everything we know comes from him. Everything we know comes from him. I used to teach a class uh, on science and technology. Um, my field is really history, but I uh, was asked if I would teach this class at the community college on science and technology. Uh, society, excuse me, society and technology. The connection between the two. And one of the first things I did, probably the first night of class, is I would ask my students, give me a list of the 10 most important technologies in the history of man. And I would start writing on the board. And before the class, before we got done, I had that whole board filled with ideas. And you hear things like cell phone. You hear things like uh, the jet engine, the atomic bomb, those, those sorts of things. And I would say, nope. The, I don't know if there is a comprehensive, uh, a perfect list of the top 10 technologies. But what should be on our list of the technologies? Well, I use things like fire, the wheel, right? Isn't that another one? How about the um, discovery of gunpowder? How about the sailing ship, the ship that had sails that could propel it across the seas? I, I had a, our list changed from class to class. But the idea that man has discovered anything God doesn't know about or hasn't shown him is ridiculous. Uh, when man first saw fire and how that happened, I can't tell you, God was not surprised. When you picked up your first cell phone and, and was amazed at what it would do, God was not surprised. He knows all things, and he knows how to do all things well. So the whole point of this is everything we know comes from God. Now what are we going to do with it? How does it change us? Isn't it interesting at the end of this passage... He says to his disciples, now don't tell anybody who I am. After he finds, after they tell him and, and he tells them who he is and what he's going to do, then he tells them at the end of this passage, don't tell anyone. He said that before to them, didn't he? He did. Why did he do that? Anybody have any idea? It wasn't time yet to tell people. He didn't want to be hindered in his way, on his way to Jerusalem. And he knew if the word got out, people would be inundating him. And he didn't want the word to get out yet. But what did he say at the end? What did he say in Acts chapter 1 when he had that final meeting with all his disciples? What did he say to them? You'll be my witnesses, Acts 1, 8 and 9. He said you'll receive power from on high, the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. So at one point he says to his disciples, don't say anything to anyone, 
Before he left, he said, tell everyone who I am. Spread the word. And from that point on, in the book of Acts, that's exactly what they did. They spread the word. They could not keep their mouths shut about who he was. And they didn't. Nor should we. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, go into all the world, make disciples, teaching, to, teaching them to observe all these things I've taught you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission, go into all the world. I'll build the church, Jesus said. I'll build the church. You do what you're supposed to do, and I'll do what I will do. So those of you that are going to be at the Mumfest this afternoon, Kind of think about that, as people may interact with you. I hope they do. Um, I've heard Dan say, and, and I, I agree to a point, that uh, don't be too bogged. I'm putting words in his mouth, maybe. But don't be too worried about you giving them the gospel. Invite them to church where they will hear the gospel. And that's not bad advice. Come visit our church. And I guarantee you, if they come into this service on Sunday morning, they will hear the gospel. And that's important. So we have the, we have the uh, orders. We have our marching orders, if you please. And I challenge you, and I'm challenging myself, to carry out these marching orders. To tell everyone who Jesus is and what he did and what he will do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, reminding us this morning from your word of your building the church. We, Father, want to be part of that process. You will build your church. It'll either be in spite of us or with us. But I pray, O oh God, that we will be with you. That we will obey you and honor you in all that we do. We thank you for reminding us this morning of these things. We pray as we go into the world, go back into the world that we will carry your word with us and we will be quick to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.